What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA meeting, Let's Talk with the Weasel podcast, where we talk all things MMA. I went over the last card where Frank Yeager defeated Pedro Munoz, and I just found out that Frank Yeager, unless I'm forgetting a name because there's been so many fighters who have changed weight classes, Frank Yeager is the only fighter in the UFC who has defeated a top five opponent in three different weight classes. The closest one to get to that was uh, Anthony Pettis, who, of course, you know, became champion in the lightweight division, defeated Wonderboy Thompson in the welterweight division, and he defeated Charles Oliveira in the featherweight division, but Charles Oliveira was one rank away. He was number six, right? That kind of status, that kind of accomplishment for Frank Yeager, 100% puts him as one of the greatest fighters of all time, you know, maybe like somewhere in top 20, top 30. That is a very credible position to be in. Even though he's lost to some of the best fighters of all time, it takes the absolute best fighters to beat this guy. Also fighting in the lightweight division where he didn't even cut weight. He weighed like 156 walking around. I mean, he even fought a guy who went up to welterweight in the future in Benson Henderson. You know, he fought many guys who are much, much bigger than him. Even in the featherweight division, almost everybody he fought was bigger than him. And still able to become victorious in so many of those fights. Now, he's in his weight class. He's in the weight class where everybody or most of the fighters are around his size. And it's actually crazy to think about. There are bantamweights, a lot of them actually, who are bigger than he is. Think about that. The guy fought two weight classes above, a weight class where there are fighters who are bigger than him. Dominic Cruz is bigger than him, Marlon Moraes is much bigger than him, and even if you go down to 125, Davis and Figueroa is also a little bit bigger than him. And it prompts some people to think about, could he actually even make 125? I don't think he could at least be healthy at 125, and now because he defeated the number 5 contender, he's like one or two fights away from a title shot. Especially given his name, a lot of the fighters there want to fight him. He's a prestigious fighter, a legend in the game, and the fact that he is in the top 7 is going to even make the champion want to fight him. Petrion seems to be the guy that will take on the next confirmed contender, and that is going to be Aljamain Sterling. This is the fight that had to have happened. I don't know why Dana White was a bit hesitant on saying that Sterling was the number one contender, even though in everybody's eyes he was. I wonder what the game plan was. I wonder what Dana White wanted to do, because when he doesn't actually state who the number one contender is, given weeks after Petrion's win, it means that he had some other plan. I really don't know what that was. Possibly Davis and Figueredo, maybe they wanted to see how that fight was going to go and see if Figueroa wanted to go up to 135. But other than that, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Well, Sterling versus Petrion is going to be a really good fight. I do favor Petrion pretty heavily, to be honest, because if he's able to stuff the takedowns of Aljamain Sterling, there's really nothing Sterling has for him, right? On the feet, Petrion's a much more dangerous striker all around the board. His kicks are more efficient, whereas Sterling's a lot more active, and because of that, they're missing a lot, and he's using them to find his range a bit. The boxing's nowhere close in comparison, you know? So I think Petrion has Aljamain Sterling's number, to be honest. And speaking about fighters who are kind of overlooked, like Aljamain Sterling, have you guys seen Stipe's betting odds for his future potential? fights so Francis Ngannou is going to be his next fight right Stipe is an underdog against Francis Ngannou and not only is he an underdog he's a bigger underdog than when they fought the first time remember when Francis Ngannou was like a two to one favorite yeah he's a bigger favorite this time I understand Francis Ngannou is knocking people out silly no difficult at all doing it but Stipe has gotten better Francis has gotten a little bit better, but it's not as evident as Stipe's progression, right? Stipe's progression and skills, because he's been in the ring a lot longer than Francis Ganu has, we have been able to see his evolution, even at his age, 37 years old. Whereas Francis Ganu, his last fight was one of the least technical performances he's ever had in the UFC. And I understand sometimes that's got to happen. You know, sometimes you got to bum rush someone to knock them out. 
I mean, he had the perfect result, but not the best thing to look at going to a fight with Stephen Miocic because if he does that to Stipe, he's going to lose again even worse probably. His other fights, like the JDS fight, was a good display, right? That was a good performance, something we want to see from Francis Agano. And this does not take away the fact that Francis can win. Francis can absolutely win this fight, right? If he stays patient and sits back a bit and tries to counter Stipe and attack him from a distance, he definitely has a chance to win this fight because he's not going to gas out doing that. Or at least he's not going to gas out as early doing that. In the first fight, he bum-rushed Stipe from the beginning. He did not respect Stipe Miocic. He thought if he hit Stipe one time, it's over. To fight a guy as smart and as technical as Stipe Miocic, you got to take it slow with him, man. You cannot come at him with that kind of ferocity. He's too slick. His head movement is on point, and you saw that before. He's a great boxer, man. He's an amazing boxer. His footwork is underrated. He himself is still underrated because not only is he an underdog to Francis Ngannou, he's an underdog to John Jones as well. He's like a two to one underdog against John Jones. So if you're a betting man, a betting woman, I'll go on those odds as quickly as possible because they are going to change 100% because of the narrative that Stipe should not be the underdog against them too. It's going to change a bit. I do think John Jones also has a great chance of being Stipe Miocic as well. He has many more skills in his toolbox. So to say that he would lose or he would win, not necessarily. I think Stipe versus Jones would be a competitive fight. I think it would be a similar fight to uh, the Gustafson-Jones 1 fight. I think it would be something like that. Given Stipe Miocic's boxing, given his reach, his movement is underrated. He has bigger power than Gustafson, so if he catches John Jones around that reach, it's really going to cause some damage. I mean, we saw when uh, Fabio Maldonado, right? Stipe Miocic fought Fabio Maldonado, who was a light heavyweight. Fabio came up. Stipe knocked him out with one punch. That's a difference in power that light heavyweights and heavyweights have. People point to Daniel Cormier, but Daniel Cormier was originally a heavyweight. He didn't look the healthiest going down to 205, to be honest. Everybody knew Daniel Cormier is at his best when he's a heavyweight. Everybody knew it. Even John Jones said it before. So I wonder how Jones is going to be able to take the power of the heavyweights like Stipe Miocic, like a Francis Ngannou. But Jones might be different as well, so we have no idea. But there are other amazing fights coming up. So Smith versus Rakic, it's a rebounding fight for both of them. They want to get back into the swing of things, get back into contendership. I do have Rakic winning this fight by knockout. Robbie Lawler versus Neil Magny is also something like that, I believe. Two veterans in the game. And then Magomed Ankalaya versus Ian Kutilaba rematch is a fight everybody wants to see, man. That was probably the worst stoppage or... You know, one of the worst stoppages in UFC history. Kutilaba was getting caught, but he was faking being hurt 100%. And even if he wasn't, there was no reason to stop the fight because he was swinging back with all his power, right? So I cannot wait for the rematch, and they really got to pay attention to if Kutilaba does something like that again. I'm going to go over these fights in my prediction video, but I don't know if it's a hot take. I actually do think a lot of people would agree. There was a bit of an argument as to who is like the funnest or most exciting fighter in UFC history. Some people were saying like Dustin Poirier, some people were saying Conor McGregor. Man, for me, it was Robbie Lawler when he was at the top. When Robbie Lawler was the champ, or when he came into the UFC again, when he returned to the UFC, and he fought Josh Koscheck, from then all the way to the Tyron Woodley fight, Robbie Lawler was the most exciting fighter I have ever seen in the UFC, ever. Even to this day, there has never been a fighter as exciting to watch as Robbie Lawler when he was in his prime. And I wish that guy came back, man. People still to this day say, I wish we had Robbie Lawler as champion again. Because ever since, there hasn't been like a super exciting champion in the welterweight division like that. 
Tyre Woodley, Kamaru Usman, Colby Covington. None of these guys were like Robbie Lawler. It's a bit of a balance thing. The same level of excitement Robbie Lawler brought is the same kind of like dullness that Tyron Woodley, Kamaru Usman, Colby brought in a way. Not saying Usman, Woodley, and Colby were not exciting, but they definitely did not stack up to Robbie Lawler. Champion Robbie Lawler was such a special fighter. But looking at some of the next cards, we do have Overing versus Augusto Sakai main eventing the next card. Tiago Santos versus Glover Teixeira. That's a very interesting fight. Tiago Santos wins. Dominic Reyes wins. That's actually the fight we want to see. Even how shallow the light heavyweight division is nowadays because John Jones has left. We cannot all lie. The fight we want to see is Tiago Santos versus Dominic Reyes. That's actually one of the best fights in the UFC right now. That's one of the most exciting fights. Then after that, we got Colby Covington versus Tyron Woodley as the main event. Just when you start getting sick of politics, the most political fight probably. Colby's already saying things. Tyron Woodley has said things in the past. Just two polar opposites in ideals. And that's going to make the buildup pretty ugly, maybe. But due to Corona, we probably won't get press conferences and a lot of promos that would reveal the fight to be in its final full ugly polarizing form. So they might say some things on their social media and some interviews, but that's going to be pretty much it. Then they're just going to fight each other. Maybe they're going to have that phone call thing that they still do today. I don't know why they don't update the quality of those phone call conferences. Part of me wants to see the full show. Part of me wants to see how bad this could be. But then the other part of me is like, you know what, keep politics out of this and just have them fight each other. That's it. Is it might get too ugly given how people respond to American politics these days. I do expect Colby Covington to win that fight. I actually expect him to dominate it. Maybe lose one round. Who knows? Maybe he gets dropped and loses one because Tyron Woodley cannot lose 15 rounds in a row. Like, that can't happen. That's never happened. Going from one of the best welterweights of all time to losing 15 rounds in a row? That's a yikes. And when you look back about two years, you realize how different the narrative is now about Colby versus Tyron Woodley. Remember when Tyron was champion and Colby was on his way up? They had that kind of beef going on with each other and everybody was so sure. I still remember to this day, and even I thought Woodley would probably beat Colby Covington. So many people were so sure that Tyron Woodley would knock Colby out. Then Colby defeats Robbie Lawler, and he changes all the doubts about him. Everybody believed now that his skills were among the best of the welterweight division. And he's not just this guy who talks a lot, and people want to see him get punched in the face. And that was a driving force for people to believe that he wasn't a good fighter. Just because of the things he would say. He beats Robbie Lawler, people turn around on his skills, but still people believe that Tyron Woodley would have defeated Colby Covington. Kamar Usman enters, beats Tyron Woodley five rounds. Now the narrative changed a lot because what Usman did to Tyron is something that Colby is very much capable of doing, given how similar their styles are. From then on, the narrative has changed and now is growing on the side of Colby will dominate Tyron Woodley. So we went from everybody's so sure Tyron would KO Colby to now everybody's so sure Colby would dominate Tyron Woodley for five rounds. Has there ever been such a switch of a narrative, whether it be because the opinion of Colby has changed, the opinion of Tyron Woodley has changed? It's so shocking how different the thought of this fight is now compared to a year and a half ago to two years ago. Now, a lot of people seem to have changed their opinions on Tyron Woodley, not so much Colby Covington, even though I do see the change in opinions of Colby Covington for sure, given that everybody thought he was not a good fighter or not one of the elites. And then once he beats Robbie Lawler, everybody's opinions changed on him. Everybody grew to believe that he was an amazing fighter, probably one of the best welterweights on the planet. But the thing about Tyron Woodley is Tyron has been the same fighter for like seven years. And that's not exaggerating that much. Think about when he lost to uh, Rory McDonald in 2013. That was the blueprint and how to beat him and guys like Kamar Usman, guys like Gilbert Burns, they took that blueprint and advanced on it, right? They put more to the table, put more skills to defeat 
Tyron Woodley dominantly, more dominantly than uh, Rory McDonald did. Wonderboy tried a very similar thing, but it made it a close competitive fight. Tyron is always backed up. Always. Look back when even in 2013, 2014, 15, the guy is always backed up and was never someone who engaged that much. He never really was unless he saw the opportunity to explode just like he does today. The biggest surprise about some change from Woodley was the fact that he submitted Darren Till the way he did. Nothing up to the Darce choke surprised anybody, but the Darce choke itself is one of the lone moments of Tyron Woodley's recent career where he has showcased some kind of evolution. Everywhere else, he's been the same fighter. Right low kick, right overhand, right counter shot, or blitzes you down if he sees that opening after a slow-paced fight, and then he just reserves his energy by just staying on the cage and being defensive. That has been his style and his main techniques for the last seven years. And then after that is the fight we're all looking forward to. Israel Adesanya versus Paulo Costa as the main event. The co-main event is Dominic Reyes versus Jan Blachowicz, which is an amazing fight as well. The rest of the card is okay. You know, it's not that bad. Not a lot of fighters that the casual fans are going to know about, but the card is still not done. There's still some more fights that they got put on this because it only has like nine fights or eight fights. But Adesanya versus Costa is an interesting one. So it's undefeated versus undefeated. I don't know why the UFC keeps going on with that because they've done it before. You know, you can only do that like once. You you can't, or maybe even twice. We'll push it twice. You can't keep pushing that kind of narrative, you know? Undefeated versus undefeated. Adesanya is definitely someone who you want to promote as undefeated, but Costa's 13-0, and I understand that's a very good record, right? Being undefeated in the UFC is an amazing accomplishment, but he hasn't been fighting that much. You know, he, he doesn't have that many fights in the UFC, and he especially doesn't have that many fights against top 10 opponents, contrary to Israel Adesanya. And it's very interesting because a lot of people have this weird perspective on Paulo Costa because he looks like this big muscular meathead. They think, you know, he's not intelligent. They think that Izzy is actually under his skin, and they think he has this tremendous amount of power that he can knock on anybody with one punch. Well, actually, none of this is true. None of this is true. First of all, he is an intelligent guy. He's trying to speak another language so it can seem that way. And number two, it looks like he's under Izzy's skin more than Izzy's under his skin, which also shows maybe some level of intelligence for Paulo Costa. Just because he's like this meathead-looking guy doesn't mean that he gets his feelings hurt so easily, you know? The thing at Adesanya versus Yoel Merrill fight where Paulo Costa was going crazy, I think it's just for show. He wasn't really going to try to fight Israel Adesanya. He knows he's not going to do that. And he has a good coach behind him who's not going to allow him to do that, you know? So I think it's all show, promote the fight, all that stuff. That's why he's going after Izzy the way he is with the trash talk, right? I don't think he has anything against Israel Adesanya, to be honest. He's just trying to hype up this fight because he knows he can go after Izzy for some things out of sight maybe insecure about some stuff so there's that and then the power thing so people call Paulo Costa one of the biggest power punchers in the UFC which is actually not evident he might be right he might be like a Dan Henderson where later in his career he starts knocking people out with one punch but that is something we're actually not seeing right now there has not been one fight in the UFC where he has knocked out someone with one punch without damaging them beforehand, right? He's actually a combination puncher. He's not so much of a sniper or a guy who just bulldozes you with one punch, like a Francis Ngannou or a Davis Figueredo or someone like that, you know? He's a guy who breaks you down systematically with his boxing, with his body kicks, to the point where you cannot take his blows anymore. He's a lot more overwhelming of a volume power puncher than he is of a one-shot striker, you know? It's just he looks like he would knock you off one punch every single time. But that is just, right now, it's not evident. Maybe he knocks out Adesanya with one punch. Maybe he does it. Maybe he connects with the perfect punch. But as of right now, 
there is no evidence in that, right? It's not a Yoel Romero. It's not even a Robert Whitaker. There's guys in this division who have more one-punch knockouts than Paulo Costa has. It might be the fact that they actually see his punches coming, and that is why he's not knocking him with one shot because he does loop his punches a lot, and he throws a bunch of them, so they're overall being on a very intense defensive state, and that is probably why they're not getting knocked out so easily. I mean, he does have a short reach, so he really has to get in in their face, and when he does that, they are just expecting everything from the storm, right? The storm comes... His punches start hailing everywhere, and they're just looking to defend all of it. So yeah, I don't know. I just see a lot of people talk about that Paulo Costa is like the biggest puncher with Yoel Romero in this weight class. I still haven't seen the evidence in that. I see the evidence in Yoel Romero being the heaviest puncher in this division, but we still got to see it from Paulo Costa. That does not undermine his danger level, right? Paulo Costa is extremely dangerous. Now, if we're talking about the most dangerous strikers, Paulo Costa is definitely up there. But you have to also put Adesanya up there. You also got to put Robert Whitaker up there, and you definitely have to put Jared Cannonier. So here's my list of hardest punchers in the middleweight division. Number one is Yuval Romero. I think we can all agree on that. Number two, I actually say is Jared Cannonier. He brought down that heavyweight power to the middleweight division, and it's horrifying. Every time he touches someone, not even his punches, we'll just say overall strikes, right? And that puts Yuval Romero even more over the top as the heaviest striker in this division. But Jared Cannonier from leg kicks to body punches to punches to the head, Whenever he touches people, they shake up or drop every time. Look at every time he touches someone. It's weird. He leg kicks Anderson Silva, tears his ACL with it, which is very weird. He leg kicks uh, Hermanson, and Hermanson definitely didn't want to take any more of those after the first one. Trying to evade it, switch stances, move away from the kicks. As soon as he touches Hermanson with that big uppercut as he countered the takedown, Hermanson was done. As soon as he touches David Branch with that right hand... David Branch was done. That guy hits hard, man. And I feel uh, pretty bad for Robert Whitaker, to be honest. Because if Whitaker gets hit once by that guy, it's probably over. Whitaker has great heart, but he doesn't have the best chin. He'll try to fight back after he gets cracked. But it won't take too much for uh, Kennedyer to finish it off. Number three heaviest striker in this division might be Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson hits so hard, man. Talking about a guy who has one-punch knockout power. He's probably displayed the most one-punch knockouts in the entire middleweight division. So you can even make an argument he's the hardest puncher in this division. Because of his leverage and how much he commits into his punches, it's so scary to watch him just land that long left hand right through the chin, man. And then it gets really tricky. So you got Uriah Hall, you got Kelvin Gastelum, you could probably put Paulo Costa somewhere in there after, you could put Robert Whitaker, even Darren Tillitzar whenever he commits for it. He's just a bit inactive, that's why he's not getting all these knockouts. When I say inactive, I mean inside the fight. He doesn't have a tremendous amount of volume. He's very careful with where he strikes and when he strikes. Edmund Shabazian hits hard. There's Darren Stewart. Darren Stewart, 100%, one of the hardest strikers in this division. Well, there is Adesanya too, you know. Not the most powerful, but probably one of the most lethal strikers in this division because of his precision and his speed. But that top three, Yoel Romero, Jarek Hennanier, and Derek Brunson, I believe that's a solid, concrete top three for hardest strikers in this division. And you guys hear about Dana White when he got asked about Tony Ferguson versus Dustin Poirier? Well, he got asked it again, and he said probably twice. Not Now, the first time he said, yeah, it probably happened. Probably. We'll see. Second Second time he said, it will probably happen on UFC 254. So does that mean it's done? I mean, that's the fight to make, right? Since Conor retired, Tony versus Dustin is like the only fight to make in this division with those two. And I'm sorry, if that fight gets put together, people are saying that Adesanya versus Costa is the biggest fight of the year. It's Tony versus Dustin. 
Tony vs. Dustin Poirier is probably the best fight of 2020 so far, on paper at least. Wow, man, that fight's gonna be so crazy if it happens. If it happens, I'll make a video about it, but as of right now, off the top of my head, man, some people are saying Dustin Poirier's gonna win, some people are saying Tony Ferguson's going to win. Straight off the dome, I think Tony Ferguson is going to win, but if you give it a little bit more thought, you definitely do see a huge possibility that Dustin Poirier finishes him off by TKO. It's just so weird to predict any of Tony's fights because of how awkward and, and unorthodox he is. You don't know what he's going to come out there like. You don't know what he's going to do. We all know Dustin Poirier is going to fight. We all know what he's going to try to do. But that's what makes it so hard for Tony Ferguson. If Tony rushes and is very aggressive against Dustin Poirier, he might actually get caught. But if he sits back and uses his reach, he might get caught still. Man, the more I think about it, the more I think Dustin Poirier is going to win this. Right now, I'm going to say Dustin Poirier wins the fight. I know last time I think I said Tony Ferguson. I got to do more research on the two. I got to watch more of their fights and break it down a bit. But it's crazy. The volume is going to be insane. The power between them two is going to be insane. Definitely the winner of that fight gets a title shot. 100%. Connor's just sitting back, you know, so I don't know what's going on with him. I hear, you know, Dana White say that Connor doesn't want to fight. So he can't jump ahead of Tony versus Dustin Poirier. But then again, we also have the GSP thing. If Habib retires after. But Habib also says something that hints that he's not going to retire, I believe. I forgot exactly what he said. Oh, he said whoever beats Dustin Poirier gets a title shot, but he also wants to fight GSP. So what is it? GSP is 100% down for it. We all know that. I mean, when Ariel Hawani talked to him, Ariel said that GSP was already thinking about fighting him. Like, already think about preparing for the guy. So he's all in. What I think it's going to be is, if Tony beats Dustin Poirier, I think because Habib's father wanted Habib to fight Tony at one point, I think they're going to try to make it again. And then... Habib is going to uh, fight GSP as his retirement fight. If Dustin Poirier beats Tony Ferguson, I don't think it's going to motivate Habib to fight him because he already beat him. He beat him what? Last year. I think he's going to go right to the GSP fight and retire. And he said whoever beats Dustin Poirier gets a title shot. He never said Dustin Poirier gets a title shot if he wins his next fight. And here's the thing. I did jump the gun a little bit. You guys did make a lot more sense. Um, sometimes I can just jump into the hype and it just makes it fun for me. So I said that if Habib beats Justin Gaethje and then GSP, he's the greatest fighter of all time. He's probably not. You can make an argument, but I still believe that GSP would be the greatest fighter of all time. If he beats Justin, Tony, and then GSP, do I jump the gun now? <laughs> do I jump on the train then? Man, that would be so crazy. And I, I know a lot of people are saying beating GSP in a weight class GSP's never competed in is not that great of an accomplishment. But that's just an age. We got to see how GSP performs. You just can't look at the age and say being a 40-year-old GSP is nothing special. What if that 40-year-old GSP is better than ever? We're in a very weird time of 2020 where Daniel Cormier, 41 years old, is still in his prime, right? Stipe Miocic is just getting better at 37. Michael Bisping, look what happened to Michael Bisping. He got better when he hit like 38 years old or whatever it was. And when GSP did fight Michael Bisping, he looked great. He just looked a bit slow because of the added on weight. If he goes down to 155 or wherever they're going to fight, 165, 170, we got to see how GSP performs before we say that he's over the hill or say he's not in his prime anymore or anything like that. We still got to see how he performs because we've seen weirder things than that. I understand GSP has been fighting for a very, very long time, but he took a bit of a break and it seems like that break between the Michael Bisping fight and the Johnny Hendricks fight helped him a bit. Right? It made him stay a little bit more focused, and he didn't lose a step in his technical ability. And that's a great thing to look at. It's been, what, three years since then? So if Habib fights GSP, and he's 39 years old, or 40 years old, whatever he's going to be by then, and Habib beats GSP, who looks just as good as ever, that is the biggest win in UFC history. Right, Beating the greatest fighter of all time, when he looks great, 
is the biggest win in UFC history, 100%, especially given his skills, and especially given that on paper, he should be a very tough fight for Habib. And especially if Habib dominates him the way he dominates everybody else, right? If he dominates a great GSP for five rounds and doesn't lose a round, and let's say he does it to Justin Gaethje, let's say he does it to Tony Ferguson, if Tony beats Poirier, I mean, that argument of greatest of all time gets in a very interesting place. So I will say, if Habib beats Justin and GSP, even if it's the greatest GSP, he's not the greatest of all time, but he's definitely top five. If he beats Tony, Justin, and GSP, and let's say he dominates all of them, I can hear the argument 100%. Will I commit to it? I don't know, man. I got to see it happen first. And I didn't really want to talk about it too much, but okay, Dana White spoke on the RNC, the Republican National Convention. If you're not an American, you probably are confused about the whole Republican-Democrat thing here, how it replicates so much of a team sport. But he spoke in that convention, and the thing I want to talk about is, forget the politics. I don't even know if they're casual fans, but people who probably read a few articles about MMA that don't watch the sport started going after Dana for the pay or lack of pay that he gives his fighters in response in response with some toxicity against him right because he's in support of Donald Trump people against Donald Trump and against the Republican Party looked at some way to target Dana White and they started talking about this and they specifically were talking about the biggest stars in comparison to boxing now here's the thing man when we talk about fighter pay and the thing we're concerned about is not the biggest stars necessarily we're more concerned about the guys who are not even ranked and are in the UFC such as you know like a Nico Price Mirbek Tysimov, you know, give the name. Most of the fighters in the UFC seem to be very much underpaid. For being at the highest level in the biggest organization in the world, the best fighters in the world, they don't actually get paid that much. They do have opportunities, of course. The biggest stars seem to get paid. When you look at the biggest stars in MMA in the UFC, it's Conor McGregor and Habib. Also Jorge Masvidal, but we don't know exactly how much Jorge has been paid in his last fight against Kamaru Usman and his fight against Nate Diaz. We do know what Conor got paid, and we do know what Habib gets paid. Conor said that he got paid $50 million dollars in his loss against Khabib Nurmagomedov. He expected, or he said he was going to get $80 million against Donald Cerrone. That's a lot of money, in boxing or not. That's a huge amount of money that only, what, two fighters ever gets paid more? Floyd Mayweather and maybe Manny Pacquiao are the only two fighters that got paid more than Conor. And we do know Habib also gets 10 figures per fight, given that he made $16.5 million in 2019 and 2020. And that is according to Forbes. Now, I don't necessarily know if that's only from fighting because it doesn't necessarily say that. But regardless, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, especially for a pay-per-view that didn't sell more than Jorge versus Kamar Usman, and it didn't sell more than Conor versus Cerrone. And because of that, it probably sold a little bit under a million pay-per-view buys, but getting 10 figures from a sub-million pay-per-view buy card means that if Habib gets up there over a million pay-per-view buys, the guy's making a bunch of money, man. A bunch of money. I don't know necessarily how much John Jones makes. He says something like half of what Deontay Wilder makes or something like that, which is almost $10 million, I would think, right, per fight. Now, this isn't close to what some of the highest paid boxers make, but you have to also know, lower paid UFC fighters get paid more than lower paid boxers, almost always. But the highest paid boxers get paid more than the highest paid UFC fighters. And this is because there's there's many different promotions that are on par with each other. UFC is almost like a monopoly in MMA, where they have taken so much talent, they have over, what, 400 fighters on their roster, where there is no boxing promotion that has anywhere near that many fighters, and anywhere near that many fighters to pay, which is why they can have Canelo fight and make, what, $300 million a year, or whatever it is. And you have Deontay Wilder, who went through this 
free agency and everybody wanted him in their promotion so they kept upping his pay. That sort of thing you don't really get in MMA that much. You get it very, very rarely where Fedor tried it when he was in negotiation to get into the UFC, but his manager asked for too much. Was it like half ownership of the UFC or whatever? Crazy thing he wanted. So if you just look at it as, is it a lot of money? Yes, UFC fighters, the top stars of the sport, make a lot of money, especially giving you know, sponsorships and all that stuff. I mean, Habib charges $300,000 for speaking engagements. That is crazy. He makes more money speaking than most fighters in the UFC make in their fights. Actually make in a year. Think about that. So I just wanted to bring some objectivity into that. People are just saying Dana White doesn't pay his fighters, which is not even necessarily true given how much Conor and Habib make. It's a lot of money, man, more than most boxers in the world. But yes, they don't get paid as much as boxers because there's many different variables involved. Of course, the UFC can absolutely pay them more given the share in equity or whatever it is. You know, the percentages are split not that evenly. Fighters make, what, 18% of the revenue or something like that, whereas other major sports organizations, it's almost half. Right? It's almost 50-50 with the athletes and the organization. And that is the biggest problem. It's not necessarily that the fighters aren't getting paid that much. It's that the percentages, sometimes even the pay, is not on par with other sports. And that's the problem. And now let's go right to the questions here. We're going to start with the most liked comment. So if you guys want to ask any questions, you can go on my YouTube page under my community tab where I'm going to post questions for podcasts. And then you just post your questions there. Questions with the most likes do get read first. And they are not in order under the community tab. So it might not be in order of likes that I'm going to read here. So I might be missing a few. But hopefully I get them all. The most liked comment that I see is by the Stats Life Productions. Usually... He has some interesting questions. In your opinion, which UFC fighter has the best out of these several things? So best jab. Is this of all time or currently? Best jab of all time is GSP. Right now, maybe Adesanya. Anderson Silva still has a really good jab too. Petrion has an amazing jab. I'd probably say Adesanya. Number two, hook. Jan Blachowicz has a really good check left hook. But I'd probably say Paulo Costa. Do you have a straight here? If it's straight, I'd say uh, Conor McGregor. And then second would be like a Stipe Miocic. Number three, uppercut. If you notice, not a lot of fighters throw uppercuts these days. Very rare do you see an uppercut get thrown, and it might be because fighters don't want to lower their levels. That's why when they throw uppercuts, you see a lot of them throwing bolo uppercuts because they don't have to lower their level and get caught by a knee or something, you know? Justin Gaethje has a really good uppercut right, but there is Francis Ngannou. Francis Ngannou actually has a mean uppercut, and it's actually not bad in form too. that left uppercut of his, the one he knocked out, um, the guy in his debut with. Uh, what's his name? Henrique Da Silva, that guy. When he threw two uppercuts, the left one caught him, and he also caught Andrzej with one, also caught JDS with one, else over him, of course. I'd probably say Francis Ngannou is the best uppercut in the UFC. Number four, knees in the clinch. Alistair Overeem, for sure. Number five, elbow strikes. So this goes anywhere. Anywhere elbow strikes is John Jones. Number two would be Tony Ferguson. Number six, double leg takedown. GSP would be of all time. But right now, currently, I say Colby Covington probably because some people point to Kamaru Usman, but Usman doesn't go to his double leg too much now, right? You've seen it before earlier in his career, but now he's kind of doing what Habib is doing. Right, put it in against the cage, punching to the body, dragging him to the ground. It's not so much of that double leg takedown you used to see. Colby still goes for that. I'd say Colby Covington. And then number seven, ass. Oh, Norma Dumont Viana. For sure. You can't even focus on the fight when she's out there. Then we go to the governor. Hypothetically, if Douglas Lima joined the UFC, how does he fare against the top five welterweights? 
So Douglas Lima is the best fighter on the Bellator roster. Number two would be the Pitbull brother, the smaller one, the one at featherweight. Those two guys can definitely compete in the UFC. I believe it. I think they would be top five fighters. Everybody else, um, it's kind of hard to say. I know Vadim Nemkov just defeated Ryan Bader, but I still got to see more of the guy. I think he would be a top 10 light heavyweight for sure. He might be a top five, to be honest, given how shallow the division is in the UFC. But let's look at the welterweight division. Number five is Tyron Woodley. How would Tyron Woodley fight Douglas Lima? Douglas Lima beats him, for sure. Way better striker, way more careful on the defense. And because of that, he's going to expect everything Tyron Woodley throws at him. And Tyron Woodley's takedown is a bit obvious when he's not countering you, you know? and Douglas Lima is a bit patient right he's not coming out there to just throw anything at Woodley now historically Woodley does better under those circumstances but I just don't see Woodley cashing with anything surprisingly the big overhand right the big right low kick Lima's gonna expect all of it he's longer he's nearly as powerful and he has amazing check left hook that Woodley definitely has to respect so I think Lima beats him from a distance picks at him low kicks push kicks jabs check left hook and probably wins by a decision to be honest both of them being very patient number four Jorge Masvidal this would be a fight one of the most explosive striking matches in the UFC you could put on because Masvidal would go after Lima unless Masvidal you know is also patient and doesn't do anything crazy or doesn't pressure Lima at all then it won't be as explosive it'd be a bit of a chess match but they're both very comparable in their striking skills Masvidal is a little bit more active more volume in his strikes a little bit more creative and unorthodox has a nasty right body kick really good low kicks as well but Lima has better low kicks Lima also has a better jab I believe he has a way better check left hook Masvidal might have a better lunging right hand but that leaves him open for that check left hook for an uppercut from Lima Lima's a better counter puncher way better counter puncher actually way way better counter puncher than Masvidal is Masvidal is a better aggressive striker but that leaves him open a bit more I think Lima would beat him he's more powerful he has five round cardio He's longer, he's bigger, he's not going to get taken down. I think Masvidal gets outgunned in their exchanges. And also, they both have really good chins. But Masvidal has been dropped and rocked way more than Lima has. Now you could point to the fact that Masvidal has been fighting better fighters, but that doesn't change the fact that he has sustained way more damage in his career than Lima has. Right? Lima doesn't get hit that much. And because that he's a fresher chin, given that he's more powerful than Jorge, if they exchange blows on each other, Lima is 100% going to come out on top. And the fact that he's a counterpuncher and patient, he'd most likely win most of the exchanges between the two. Now, how would he fight Leon Edwards? This would be a chess match, 100%. Patient and long strikers, but Edwards is going to be one that gets pushed back to the cage. And I think light kick is going to be a huge weapon for Douglas Lima in this one to really disrupt the balance of Edwards, especially for his own punches that he's going to attack from a long range. And he leans over with a bunch of his punches, which is not going to be a great thing if he gets his leg damaged. But I actually do think Leon Edwards defeats Douglas Lima. I think his volume, his sniper precision, and the way he's so safe on the retraction of his strikes, he's not going to get countered by Lima that effectively. It's going to make Lima have to be a little bit more aggressive. And because of that, I think Edwards scores on points counterpunching Douglas Lima for the majority of the fight. So I think Edwards would win by a decision on that one. Colby Covington. This would be interesting. Now we're going to the grapplers and the wrestlers of this division. Colby does not want to strike at all. Not at all. Uh, yes, you can try to overwhelm him, but he's going to get countered right between some of the punches. One shot from Douglas Lima is really going to hurt Colby Covington. Now the light kicks are going to get nullified because of Covington's not only takedown threat, but his pressure. Lima is going to be a counter boxer in this one for the majority of the fight and try to get probably in the tie plum instead of actually just trying to defend takedowns left and right. But with the fact that Lima is so inactive, I think Colby overwhelms him into a decision win. Gilbert Burns. This would be interesting because Burns is very aggressive, very pressuring, 
amazing striker. Pretty safe with some of his attacks, but he does lunge it for those overhands and stuff. He can get countered. Now, light kicks can possibly get to him, and that will throw off his boxing 100%. That overhand right is going to be way overextended because of the damage to his legs, and that is going to leave him open for some counter shots, but his takedowns are really nice, and he's the one who's going to be able to make it more of a MMA fight than anybody else in the top five, which will also make it very competitive. Are his takedowns good enough to take down Douglas Lima? I have no idea, to be honest, because I think Lima's a better striker. He's more dangerous of a striker, too. So that makes it very competitive. I don't know who would win this one, to be honest. But I'll actually go Lima in this one due to his composure. No matter what Gilbert Burns throws at him. I actually don't think everything that Gilbert Burns has would surprise Douglas Lima at all. He engages in a kind of fight that Douglas Lima thrives in, right? The heavy pressure, but sticks on the outside a bit. Long blitzing combinations, big leg kicks, big overhand rights. That sort of thing where you're kind of sticking from a far range and looking for the opportunity to explode on the inside, max behind jabs and feints. That is where Douglas Lima shines. Now, even if Gilbert Burns goes and attempts takedowns mixing with those strikes, I just don't see him taking down Douglas Lima, to be honest. I see Douglas Lima defending a lot of things early on, downloading the data, and then starts picking up on some counter shot opportunities as the fight plays out. And then it comes to a point in the third, fourth, and fifth rounds where Lima is just absolutely taking over the striking exchanges and hurting Gilbert Burns here and there. So I'll go with Douglas Lima on this one. I actually go by like a fourth round TKO. And then Kamaru Usman. This would be an easier fight for Lima than the Colby Covington fight because Usman isn't as pressuring or as hectic with his pressure so it's going to leave Lima a little bit more breathing space to counter or throw something back throw some light kicks Usman doesn't really check light kicks Usman also likes to stay in the long boxing range which is going to allow Lima to attack him with some push kicks and long jabs of his own and because of that long range Usman's takedown is going to be a little bit more obvious than someone like Colby Covington's and it's going to allow Lima to defend him a little bit more but at the end of the day I think Usman also wins by a decision. I think he overwhelms him once he grabs onto him. And then we go to Joe Kerr. Have you considered getting credentials and going to events? Schmo goes and you got more subs, on YouTube at least. Love the work, keep it up. Nah, it's not my kind of thing, man. I'm not the interview kind of guy. If I'm going to talk to a fighter, it's going to be more of a conversation. I don't want to just ask him questions all the time. And I know Schmo, you know, he goes and does that. But he's been doing that for a while, right? He does it with other sports too. So he's more of a journalist or interviewer of some kind. Um, I'm not necessarily that, you know. Then we go to Amir Mustafa. How do you see these dream matchups going? Prime Steopic versus Prime Kane. I think Prime Steopic probably because he has a true immigrant mentality. No, um, Kane never had the best chin. He had an okay chin, but not the type to take a straight right from Stipe Miocic, right? Stipe's boxing is way better, and Kane's boxing was very hectic. There wasn't too much calculation in it, other than he wanted to get you backing up. Whatever he can do to get you backing up to the cage, that's what he was going to try to do. And it backfired when he fought Fabrizio Verdum. Now, everybody's talking about the fact that Kane Velasquez got tired. But Fabrizio Verdum set a precedent before Kane got tired. He just threw straight punches. That's it. He met Kane head on with straight punches. That's all he did. And because of that, Kane had a hard time pressuring Fabrizio Verdum. And you can also point to the fact that Kane didn't go for any takedowns because he couldn't. Well, going for takedowns against Stipe Miocic is going to be a hard thing in general, right? Because Stipe is not going to take his neck or anything, but he's going to stop them and defend them. He can be a hard guy to hold down as well. Stipe is not going to gas out either. If Fabrizio Verdum is going to throw down straight punches, jab, jab, jab straight at Kane Velasquez whenever they kept meeting each other in the exchanges, because Kane wanted to back him up, Stipe's jab and straight are going to destroy Kane Velasquez. We're talking about a guy with a longer reach than Fabrizio Verdum and Kane, more power than both of them, and way more precise with his punches, especially the jab and straight, which are his best weapons in general, right? Those are the things he attacks everybody with. 
Fabrizio Verdum just kind of found that in the fight because of his game plan. Kane's going to have a hard time backing up Stipe Miocic initially from the center of the cage, right? Stipe also has a very good counter right straight, just in case. He also pivots off the center line better than any heavyweight you've ever seen. And that's going to throw off the charging motion of Cain Velasquez. And that pivot step is also great to get away from the cage, right? In case Kane is on Stipe Miocic against the cage, he can throw that pivot cross or just take off the pivot step and get away from it in general. And now they're back into Stipe Miocic's world in a sense. So I think a prime Stipe would defeat a prime Kane Velasquez. Then we go to Usman versus Habib at welterweight. I think Usman wins. I think he's stronger. I think his wrestling is comparable, right? Wrestling, not necessarily ground game. In the clinch, all that stuff, I think Usman's going to be able to compete with Khabib. He's also a better striker, better puncher, should I say. Longer, more powerful, can go five rounds, won't gas out at all, even if he's getting taken to the ground. And that's a hard thing to see. Usman's never been taken down. Now, I understand he hasn't fought the best wrestlers that have attempted takedowns on him. But I have seen Habib get taken to the ground before. I have seen him on his in his guard before. And yeah, I got to go with Usman on this one. He's just bigger, stronger, better boxer, very strong wrestler in general, and very good in the clinch. Masvidal versus Ferguson at welterweight. Oh, that's a good fight, man. I got to go with Ferguson. Because Masvidal, I've said it a bunch of times before, you pressure the guy heavily, he kind of stays on the defense. And you cannot do that against Ferguson. You cannot do that against Ferguson because he's just going to overwhelm you far more terrifying than anybody else can. He's also longer than Masvidal. At welterweight, he has knockout power, which is scary. He has better cardio than Masvidal. And that's the thing, man. Masvidal has a few instances, a few steps back where he's going to attack with Ferguson. But after like two steps back, he's going to be a bit too defensive. And I think Ferguson is going to overwhelm him with some strikes, especially the unorthodox stuff. Dominic Reyes versus John Jones in the rematch. That's a hard one to predict because Jones is better in the rematch because he figures you out. What has he figured out about Dominic Reyes? We have no idea. In the rematch, Reyes is going to have to pace himself a little bit more. And because of that, is it going to have the same kind of success that he had in the first three rounds? And does that leave more opportunity for Jones to try more things or take advantage of some other things? Very hard to predict, to be honest. I'll go with Reyes. And then we go to Luke Balami. If Anthony Johnson returns to the light heavyweight division, do you think he has a good chance of becoming the champion now that John has vacated? In my opinion, he definitely does. Keep up the great work, my man. Thank you so much, man. And yeah, he definitely has a great chance, but I just don't see him doing it. I think Reyes is too hard of a fight for him. Tiago Santos will probably be a fight where he can win, but the Dominic Reyes fight is so tricky for him because Reyes is for sure going to shoot in for takedowns too. Reyes is a smart guy, man. Very smart fighter, really good game plan. Him and his team developed very good game plans. And he also wrestled before too. Knowing that Anthony Johnson gasses out pretty quickly, and if you put him on the back step, he tends not to be the same fighter. He's admitted as well. He does give up when things get hard. Essentially, when he becomes the nail and the opponent is the hammer, he doesn't really know how to get out of that. He doesn't know how to dig himself out of that situation. And that's happened plenty of times throughout his career from Vitor Belfort to Daniel Cormier. And because that Dominic Reyes has to really worry about the first two rounds, he will shoot him for takedowns just to gas out Anthony Johnson, use his reach from a distance, pivot on the forward trajectory that Johnson attacks on, counters with the left hand in every given angle. And because that Johnson becomes a very obvious target with the same techniques he attacks everybody with. This kind of stuff I think Dominic Reyes is going to be able to see from the far distance that he's going to keep Johnson on and eventually gas him out and finish him off in like the third or fourth round. Then we go to Shadow Breaks. Hey, Weasel, I hope you're okay, brother. Ask quickly. Thank you so much, man. I hope you're doing fine, too. So if Paulo Costa goes up to 205, how much of a physical advantage could he lose? 
I mean, a large part of his pressure and power in the division is due to his physicality, and I don't think it will work the same at 205 because he wouldn't be bigger than most fighters and his success isn't really due to his technique. I even see him having a hard time against someone like Kutilaba. Another thing is that even though he can weigh 230 pounds, he is not really in the best condition and he even looks somewhat overweight. Yeah, so it's hard to say so because we've never seen him up there. We've never seen him when he competes. We don't even know if he actually gains power going up because he does cut a lot of weight and that would be a terrifying force in the 205 pound division if he actually gains power and carries on with the same kind of pressure and volume but he probably won't have the same kind of cardio then again we don't even know that because he cuts so much weight but yeah I will have to say at 205 he probably won't be as effective because of how much bigger guys are going to be there and not only bigger how much longer and taller fighters are going to be in that division given the fact he probably won't even be the most powerful guy or even you know top five most powerful guys in that division it's really going to hurt his chances in the exchanges because people are going to punch with him which is something a lot of fighters don't do imagine him going blow for blow with someone more powerful because of his style he will probably lose those exchanges and if he loses those exchanges what is his backup you know so when you say Ian Kutilaba, I can actually see a situation where they exchange with each other, he catches Paulo Costa, and Paulo Costa has to completely change his approach. But what is that approach now? You know, we've only seen him fight one way. And if he gets outgunned ever, he's probably going to lose those exchanges. People might say, well, look at Yoel Romero. Yoel Romero's more powerful, and he didn't beat Paulo Costa on those exchanges. Only one of them. But Yoel Romero's not the most active guy, especially on the defense. He's a one-shot counterpuncher, one-shot counter-striker, whereas guys like Kutilaba, Prochaska, Dominic Reyes, Jan Blahovic, Tiago Santos, these guys don't just throw one punch and that's it, right? They're going to meet Paulo Costa with more volume than Yoel Romero brings to the table, with also possibly being more powerful than Yoel Romero. So it's a very interesting theory, to be honest. Now, I will say, people don't think Paulo Costa is that technical. He's a lot more technical than you think. People just see him throw heavy punches with a crazy amount of output, almost looking like he's just throwing just to throw and just overwhelm you, you know? But that's not necessarily the most technical thing you gotta look at. His shot placement is pretty good, right? He goes to the body at great moments where you're blocking your head. So he has good shot selection. But not just that. Look at his steps before he throws his first big punch at you. He gauges where he goes before he attacks, right? He's very smart in doing that. He knows where to go and where to step where to engage and disengage in very small movements. It's hard to see sometimes, but after I say that, now look at Paulo Costa's fights and you will definitely see him take some stutter steps or quickly move back and forth, throw some feints at the opponent before he attacks big on them, right? He knows how to engage them before he goes on the onslaught. And that's something a lot of people are missing about Paulo Costa. But yeah, overall, I can pretty much agree with a lot of what you're saying here. Then we go to No Name. Quote, John Jones has no counter-striking, no power, and is not that technical, he's just tricky, unquote, by Dominic Reyes. What do you think about this statement? Do you agree, or is it just making Jan look better by claiming that he has all these attributes? You know what, to be honest, it might be a bit of a hot take, but Jones is actually not as technical, or at least as technically polished, as many people believe. Now, Dominic Reyes is not entirely wrong. He's saying it to promote his own fight. He wants to make people believe that his opponents are great, which they are, and I'm glad he's doing that. So by criticizing Jones, they're actually going to believe that what Reyes is going up against is actually a great threat and something to take seriously. But specifically looking at what he says about Jones, no counter-striking. Well, yeah, he doesn't counter-strike that much because I've talked about it before. What is his main defense? I made an entire video about this. Post and retreat. That's the main 
thing he goes to. And because that's the primary defense of his game, he is not counter-striking that much. You kind of can't counter-strike that effectively or that efficiently when you're posting and retreating. It's very hard to do. You're just looking to get away and get back into your distance and reset the action. Because when you reset and you have an 84 and a half inch reach, you're always in the advantage. So why take the risk of counter-striking when you could just move away and use your reach to get back into a reset where now you have the advantage over your opponent? right? Jones is very smart with using his reach. It's not just the fact you have a long reach. You got to know how to use it. And nobody uses reach better than John Jones. And then he says he has no power. Well, compared to other light heavyweights, no, he doesn't. But knees, elbows, and kicks, you cannot overlook the power in those. And then he says he's not that technical. He is just tricky. I agree to an extent. He's definitely technical when he gets a hold of you. When he gets you in the clinch and gets you on the ground, he's very technical. The fact that Dominic Reyes is saying he's not technical is the fact that he didn't really get there that much right? It was mostly striking from a distance. And that is why he's saying he wasn't that technical. Because yes, Jones from a distance isn't as technically sound or technically polished as a lot of people believe. His trickiness comes with the fact that he throws so many different kinds of techniques at you from a long range and different angles. But does that ultimately go into his technique, right? If you count trickiness into his technical striking, then yes, he is very technical. But if you're separating the two, separating technique from being tricky and being unorthodox, then yes, he's not that technical because his trickiness is a huge component to his technical striking. That's actually a very interesting statement by Dominic Reyes. And then we go to Neil Johnson. Okay, this one has a lot of likes, but it's really low on the community tab. What do you think about DC saying that Habib can take down anybody up to 185? Do you think he could take down Romero, Whitaker, Wyman, and Costa? Isn't that crazy to think about? Get yourself a friend that hypes you up like DC hypes up Habib. I respect it, but... I don't think Habib can take down Whitaker. Romero, there's a possibility because Romero always slips in his fights. Maybe you can catch him there. But Romero's going to be a very hard guy to take down. Wyman's going to be a hard guy to take down. Although I can see it possibly, maybe. Colsta, possibly as well. Now, obviously, we don't even see what they're talking about regarding the training room. Because it's in the training room that they see this. Right? They see Habib take down everybody in the gym. And he trains a Luke Rockhold. So the fact that he's taking down Luke Rockhold in the gym, or at least allegedly taking down Luke Rockhold. I gotta take the word a bit, but I'm not gonna take it as absolute truth until I actually see it in a fight. Because even some guys in the welterweight division are gonna be hard for him to take down, such as a Kamaru Usman. Now, I do believe that Habib will take down most welterweights. 100%, right? Usman's probably the only guy in the welterweight division that's gonna be very tough for him to take down. But I think he can get one or two of those. Middleweight's a different story, man. I mean, if we're talking about Whitaker, who Derek Bronson, Romero, and Jacare can't get Whitaker to the ground, it's gonna be tough for Habib. And it's especially because of Whitaker's footwork, let alone his wrestling. It's just so hard to believe. As this guy says, DC was just simping for Habib. It's hard to believe that Habib would take down the guys at 185 like that. Maybe once or twice for a brief moment. I gotta see it to believe it. If he does it, I'm sipping for Habib too. He could take down Stipe. I'll start saying that if I see him take down 185ers. Then we go to the MMA wizard. A win over John Jones alone makes Stipe Miocic the greatest fighter in MMA, period. There's definitely an argument. When you talk about beating John Jones, DC twice, Francis Ngannou, JDS, Alistair Overeem, and Fabricio Verdum, there's nobody who has beaten guys of that caliber, ever. Especially back to back. Yeah, you can absolutely make the argument that Stipe is the greatest fighter of all time if he beats John Jones. Then we go to Andrew Ponson. Francis Ngannou versus the 235-pound Yuval Romero. Ah, I got Ngannou. Romero's too crazy and too unorthodox, too wild 
to attack Nganu the way he attacks everybody else. You also have to remember Nganu has a chin that can take anybody's shots, right? If he could take Stipe's and Rosenstrike shots, you think he can't take Romero's? One clash between these two, and Romero goes back to 185. 205-pound Paulo Costa versus Dominic Reyes. Like I talked about before, man, I think Reyes has his number. That pressure with that kind of approach is not going to beat a guy like Reyes. Reyes hits harder. He's way better of a sniper. He's way more precise with his shots. Longer, bigger, taller, more technical on his feet. Can probably wrestle Paulo Costa if he wants. It's a very bad fight for Paulo Costa. Very bad fight. Prime Boss Rutten versus Prime Fedor. Fedor wins for sure. He's more well-rounded. More powerful with his hands. And Basruin didn't really deal that well with uh, guys who took him to the ground. Fedor is not a wrestler, but if they get into the clinch, Basruin is, of course, going to slap on with some elbows and stuff like that. But he's going to get taken to the ground. He's going to get flown through the air. And on the ground, Basruin has nothing for Fedor. Ruin just attacks a lot, right? He's almost like a... uh, like an ancient version of Tony Ferguson, in a way, when you get him to the ground. He attacks off his back a lot. Not so much with submissions, but strikes and always active, never allowing you to just settle. But that's just not going to work against Fedor. And he's not like a Kevin Randleman who's just looking to take it to the ground and land shots in your guard, right? Fedor doesn't do that. Fedor knows how to transition very well, and I think he submits Basruin. Then we go to Guyvolt. Do you think people are overlooking Justin Gaethje? We never got to see Tony Ferguson versus Habib. Everyone was saying, all Tony has to do is get past Gaethje and we will finally see that curse fight, but he sabotaged it. And now people are wanting Habib vs. GSP, looking past Geishi. Will he spoil our fun again? Who knows? In a way, people are overlooking Geishi for the fact that we are talking about GSP, and we still talk about Tony vs. Habib. And we talk about Connor vs. Habib. And I don't think it's the fact that they think Justin Gaethje is just going to lose. I think they're not even looking at the fight necessarily. They're just looking at what happens after, right? If they actually focus on what this fight is, and who Justin Gaethje is to Habib, then they realize how competitive this is probably going to be or how dangerous it's going to be. I think the excitement of the future is what's making them overlook this. Will he spoil the fun? I actually don't think so. I think Habib beats him. I think he does take him to the ground and dominate him, but you never know. Gaethje has a very good camp behind him, and it is with no crowd, probably going to make Gaethje a lot more focused in the fight on what he has to do. Then we go to Ben Hetchler. Hey Weasel, few questions. Who wins? Petrion versus Figueroa at 135. I think Petrion wins. He's more technical, better boxer, and makes Figueroa gas out into a late stoppage. Dan Hooker versus Charles Oliveira. That's actually a very competitive fight because because Hooker has good takedown defense. And if Oliveira cannot take him to the ground, he's going to fight in Dan Hooker's world. Now, who's the better striker? Technically, it is Oliveira. Oliveira has way more polished hands and kicks. Hooker toughs his way through a lot of things, and he catches you with unorthodox striking. He doesn't have near the kind of defense that Oliveira has either. He takes a lot to the chin, and Oliveira definitely has power to knock you down. I think Oliveira does win, but it is a competitive fight for the fact that Oliveira cannot take him to the ground, or at least probably won't be able to in the fight. Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor too. I think Conor wins. Connor's a better boxer. He's way sharper with his hands, especially the left hand of his. They are both in the same stance, so I do see Connor using his jab a little bit more. He is the longer fighter as well. And Dustin Poirier does something very ill-advised against someone like Connor McGregor, and that is he switches stances to throw his power hand. He pressures you back with his lead hand, and he switches when he throws the power hand. He's going to get countered by Connor, 100% if he does that. Connor's going to see the punch coming from a mile away. He knows what Dustin does. Slip on the outside of the punch or duck under the overhand and counter him with the left, either an uppercut or an overhand over the shoulder. Dustin Poirier versus Justin Gaethje too. Now, if Gaethje comes out patient, 
we're in a real fight here. Way more than the first fight was. So just in case you showcase really good counter punching against Tony Ferguson, who is a very long puncher. Again, if Dustin moves forward, switching stances at a guy like Justin Gage, who is moving back to look the counter, Dustin's going to get caught. Dustin has to keep a very fundamental boxing game against Justin Gage. He cannot do that thing too much against him because he didn't do it in the first fight right stick to what he did in the first fight a little bit more in the pocket crisp fundamental boxing good jabs left hooks especially when geishi starts covering up and just let the output try to finish off geishi rather than the big knockout blow dustin is a better combination puncher than he is a sniper but for some reason against dan hooker against habib he's sniping a lot more and i don't know why whereas before he was an amazing combination puncher and that's what he has to stick to against geishi if he comes out there sniping he's gonna get countered and knocked out if he comes out there with combos and very solid retractions to his boxing i think he beats justin geishi because geishi is not gonna be able to counter him that well if he starts covering up under the volume and the output dustin is going to add on points and finish off geishi if geishi starts attacking with that inside leg kick again dustin is going to counter him with the left hand just like before eliminating the leg kick from effectiveness in the fight dustin Poirier versus tony ferguson i talked about it before i think dustin probably wins masvidal versus colby covington i think colby wins puts on more pressure more takedowns more activity than usman brought to masvidal next question who would be the lightweight champ if habib retired right now well, it would be Justin Gaethje, right? He's the interim champ. Number three, now that Usman moved to train with Trevor Whitman, how much can that help Gaethje prepare for Habib? I heard that Usman's moving back. Is he still with Trevor Whitman? Because I heard he moved to Whitman because he was going to fight Gilbert Burns. Well, if he is still training with uh, Trevor Whitman and Justin Gaethje, and he does help him prepare for Habib, which I actually don't think is going to happen that much, given that Usman and Habib are friends, and the fact that they have the same manager and they see each other all the time. Let's say if it does happen, though. Let's say he prepares Gaethje for Habib. It's going to be a big benefit. It's going to help him so much prepare for the wrestling, and especially the clinch work. If Usman prepares Geishi for Habib, I think Geishi might actually have a huge chance of winning. There with the Samuel Natim Ade. Hey Weasel, love the channel. Number one, if you could see one athlete from another sport cross over to MMA, who would you want to see? I think the best one would be Vasil Lomachenko. Obviously, you gotta point to someone in another combat sport, right? Because you can't point to a basketball, football, American football, hockey. But you can't look at those guys, right? Because none of them are gonna be able to fight in MMA. They need some time to train for it. Right now, if I can bring anybody, it'd be Vasil Lomachenko, 100%. The guy trained in wrestling, I think trained in Sambo, one of the best boxers on the planet, and his actual boxing style is amazing for MMA because of the way he moves and the way his footwork is. With having the Sambo wrestling background is going to allow him to stuff takedowns 100% or get away from the initial shot. He also has a video of him throwing kicks when he trained Muay Thai for a brief time. And not bad, man, for someone who hasn't, I don't know if he's ever kicked before, but for someone who's barely trained at all in kicks, they're actually not bad at all. I mean, he has the speed, he has some of the snap. The only big thing he's lacking in his kicks is hip rotation. And that's actually something people new to kicking develop later, right? That's one of the last things you develop. But man, he has the whole footwork thing down. He's on the ball of his feet. He's turning his feet at the perfect moments too. If he's actually never trained in any martial art that teaches kicks, I am beyond impressed with how he's throwing them. Another very important thing is when he was actually practicing in Muay Thai a little bit or kicking the pads and stuff, he actually looked like he was having fun and he was interested in it, right? This is something with uh, Tyson Fury, for an example, when you saw him training Darren Till, Tyson Fury was very focused and interested in learning about MMA. And this is something that's going to allow them to grow at a rapid pace. So Vasily Lomachenko would actually be a very interesting and exciting athlete to cross over into MMA that I think a lot of people would take seriously. 
Number two, Bellator champs versus the top 15 in the UFC. Ultimately, what I will say is Douglas Lima, Little Pitbull brother are the only guys that have a chance of actually fighting the champ and beating them. Pitbull for featherweight, not lightweight. You get mauled by Habib. Number three, how long do you think it takes for divisions to develop and become competitive and interesting? That's an interesting question. We have seen divisions like men's bantamweight evolve very quickly into an uber competitive zone. And I want to see how long you think it takes in general for divisions to develop. Love the content. Thank you so much, man. Very interesting question. It just depends because we do know this for sure. Welterweight and lightweight are going to be able to develop way faster than any other division, given the fact that welterweights and lightweights are around average size for people, right? Average people are around what lightweights and welterweights are, even probably featherweights, to be honest. So it's going to be hard for middleweights, light heavyweights, and heavyweights to really gain that kind of uh, talent, given that they're bigger than the normal person. And then when you look at bantamweight and flyweight, it is actually harder for them as well because they're smaller than the average person. And it is a bit interesting that bantamweight has developed so quickly, right? Not too long ago, it wasn't even that strong of a division. And now it's like top three in the UFC. How long will it take a division like light heavyweight, not necessarily light heavyweight itself, we can even say if lightweight or featherweight looks like light heavyweight right now, how long would that take for it to become a competitive, exciting division? I give it three to four years. I think three to four years and you see the division really become alive and competitive. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you did, make sure you give it a like. Make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're listening to the audio version of this. And I'll see you guys in the next video.